Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello. It's lovely to have you back, Phoebe. It's been a little while. Good to be back. I've been greatly enjoying the last couple of podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. And I think it's very fitting to have you back because to, I'm sure, the sound of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth, this is our last podcast for this kind of, what I'm calling season. We'll be back in September and we're just taking a little bit of a, I say a break over the summer. What it really is, is a chance for me to spend more time planning future episodes and getting a few together. And I don't expect to be slowing down on the podcast at all. I just won't have the sort of really intense two-week deadline every <laughs> every two weeks. Yeah, you won't be editing late to get it ready to go the next day. Yeah, it's been it's been kind of intense. I was just saying to Phoebe, I do podcasting work for my, my regular world job. So they've asked me to increase it in this time because obviously it is a great way to reach out to people. And I know I'm kind of sad to be leaving this all for a little while because it is such a, a lovely time to be reaching out to people when we're all kind of huddled at home. But yeah, it's become really intense. So I've been looking forward to my to my summer break, I'm calling it, but I, I don't see my, my life slowing down that much, but it'll be a break to me anyway. But we'll be back in September. We'll be back in September. And also, I'll be sure, do follow me on Twitter and on Instagram, all of those details. It's at Seeking Watson and um, the podcast is at Risking Enchantment Podcast, because I think I, I will be making a few guest appearances or I may be speaking at a few different things so I'll try to share those with you as best I can. I believe I will be speaking on the Great and Main podcast and they're a group in Boston who are really working with exploring the the nature of vocation in Catholic life and, and vocation in the workplace as well. So I'm very excited to be talking to them. I'm also going to be speaking at a Dominican conference online on Pentecost, so on Sunday, three to four, on a panel for faith and culture. So do check that out. I think it's dominicanscork.ie if you want further details. It'll probably be only out a couple of days, if not hours, before this podcast is released. So you probably won't be able to catch it live, but I'm hoping they'll upload them again afterwards. So uh, I'm not really sure. But like I said, hopefully you'll be seeing my face and and hearing from me over the summer. But I'm looking forward to coming back with a bang in September. But for our last episode, Phoebe and I have rejoined to talk about one of our favourite kind of topics, and that's about kind of fairy tales and the importance of fairy tales. But we're specifically going to be looking at it through the lens of a fantastic story called Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. I'm so excited. This is one of my favourite books and favourite movies. Yes, I saw the movie quite a long time ago and it became a kind of firm favourite, but Phoebe has definitely been tugging on my sleeve saying, when are you going to read the book? When are you going to read the book? To the extent that I helped organise to get her a really nice present of a folio edition, beautiful Howl's Moving Castle, hardback illustrated that she's holding up to the camera for me to look at jealously. And so uh, you got that this Christmas, wasn't it? Christmas, yeah. And so I've already been like looking through the illustrations of that, but I hadn't managed to read it. But I decided to bite the bullet and finally go for it. And I got the audiobook on Audible, which I would also say I would highly recommend. But the story in general is just fantastic. 
Yeah, and it's definitely one that you can enjoy both the film and the book in either order. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read the book before you see the film. And they're also different enough, particularly the like, second half of them is different enough that you don't ruin either. Yeah, in some ways, it kind of almost feels like an... I'm only half joking about this, but it almost feels like an ideal way to do a film adaptation because it's funny, the first half of the movie feels like it's very, very close to the book. Like It feels like there's some kind of shot-for-shot reenactments of what happens in the book. But then the second half, what it does is it takes a lot of elements that are genuinely there in the story and kind of recasts them in a slightly different way. And I guess in some ways to simplify it, and they wanted to bring out a slightly different message, particularly about war. But those elements are definitely in the book, but they end up being very, very different Coming to the book second, it felt like I recognized a lot of the the characters and the motifs and the imagery of it, but I didn't know where it was going and I didn't know what was going to happen necessarily. And so I was able to sort of get the setting and the ambiance and the look of it from the film. And then armed with that, I was able to kind of explore a sort of new version of the story in the book. So I would definitely say that you can enjoy both versions. And I think they're they're both great. I think what works about it is, is both of them have the same kind of heart, which is kind of a pun on what we're going to be talking about later, but that um, they keep the same themes and they keep the same essential truth to them. And so there's a part of them that's recognisable in the two, even when the stories are quite different. Because when I texted Phoebe after finishing the book, everyone had told me that the film is so different to the book, the film is so different to the book. And then I was kind of like, I was in some ways expecting it to be more different because I have come away from the book with the same kind of feelings and sensations that I did with the film, even if the plot was kind of quite different. Yeah, I think they definitely simplify the plot a lot. Because the latter half of the book, you've got quite a lot of weird elements coming in that work really well. But in a fi- particularly in a film setting, I think you'd just be like, what? What's happening? So they simplify that a lot, but they still keep a lot of the themes. They don't change. Yeah, like you said, they don't change the heart of the book, which is what any adaptation is about, really. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it's such a beautiful movie. Like you, I saw the movie first. I would have seen that as a teenager and then realised with delight that there was a book to go with it. But years later, and was like, oh, I have to read the book. <laughs> For anyone who loves the movie, reading the book builds up your understanding of the movie. Like, you see in certain parts what they're getting at. Mm-hmm, definitely. And also, I don't think we explained that the film is an animated Studio Ghibli film. So if you haven't come across it, it's that beautiful, really densely rich, textured, but enchanting and beautiful animation style that Studio Ghibli is really well known for. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is not a movie I want to see done live action. No, I can't imagine it live action. That would be crazy. But as all of the Studio Ghibli films have come to Netflix recently, now is a great time <laughs> to explore all of them. Or do what I did and uh, just explore one that you've already seen, but go and read the book that you haven't read. <laughs> but no, it, it, it's great. And, and I would really encourage people to watch and read. Speaking of which, again, as we always do, we'll give a little bit of a spoiler alert. We are going to be talking about some plot details. We're going to do our best to avoid anything that's, that's like a plot twist or a, a really plot-centric surprise. We will be talking about some details that are only revealed later in the book, but we're also going to try and stick to not necessarily 
spoiling anything that's in the second half of the book that you wouldn't have seen in the film. So essentially, we're kind of basing this on people having seen the film and not necessarily having read the book. And so anything that's in the film is sort of fair game we're considering. So if you haven't watched the film, maybe go watch that first and then come back to this. So I think we should dive into like a slight overview of the story. There's a lot of elements to it, so this will be very simplified. But it takes place in a magical kingdom called Ingeri, and it's full of all of the usual things of magic. I think the opening line of the book is... In the land of Ingeri, where such things as seven-league boots and cloaks of invisibility really exist, it is quite a misfortune to be born the eldest of three. Everyone knows that you are the one who will fail first and worst if the three of you set out to seek your fortunes. What a great opening to a book. That is fantastic. (laughs) So as you can see, that sets up a lot of the book. It follows Sophie, who is the eldest of three. And so the whole beginning of it really sets up the fact that she doesn't do anything with her life because she just assumes she's going to fail because she's the eldest of three. But she finds herself put under the curse of an evil witch which makes her look like she's now a 90 year old woman and feel like like a 90 year old woman Um, and so she kind of goes from being quite like a mousy anxious scared sort of person to being she finds like being an older person has given her a kind of sense of freedom so she becomes this quite like sort of cantankerous and funny and outspoken old lady and she goes to find her fortune because she thinks, well, why not? At this point, I'm under a curse. I might as well try to find my fortune. And so she happens upon the castle, the moving castle of the wizard Howl, who's sort of reputed as being an evil wizard who eats the hearts of girls. And he lives in a house that sort of walks or moves across the landscape. And you also find out that it has a function where there's like a dial on the door. So if you turn the dial, it'll open onto a different place. So the castle is both in many places at once and also moving throughout the landscape. And when she enters the castle, she meets the fire demon who lives in the grate and keeps all of this magic going. And he enters into a contract with her to say if she can find a way to break the contract he has with the wizard Howl, which is keeping him kind of captive and attached to the castle, then he will break her curse. And after that, she pretty much settles into the castle and becomes part of the family of Howl the wizard and his apprentice Michael and Calcifer the fire demon and they kind of become embroiled in all of Howl's issues with how he is being asked to become like a, a royal wizard and he doesn't want any responsibilities so he's trying to as she puts it slither out of all of his responsibilities and he's also sort of always falling in love with women and trying to get them to fall in love with him and and obviously there's all kinds of hijinks and adventures that that come from this yeah it's, it's a lot of fun I think one of the scenes we should just mention here because it's so much fun and it's in both of them is when she gets to the castle and starts cleaning everything yeah that's her excuse for saying is that she just announces herself as the uh, as the cleaning lady and she starts like overhauling this completely dusty place and getting into to fights with all of the people there because they like their dust and their spiders and their things the way that they are uh, I think Howell at one point says you're victimizing us <laughs> And it's got all of those great classic elements of a fairy story. You've got people in disguise, people under curses, people in magic contracts, wizards and witches and spells and all of those great kind of like 
romantic elements of of fairy tales. But Diana Wynne Jones, who wrote it, she's a really interesting person. She actually went to Oxford and had lectures from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Although she said the lecture she went to with Tolkien, he was almost inaudible and clearly had no interest in giving it. (laughs) And she studied medieval literature, but she comes from that tradition of really knowing and understanding fairy tales and the importance of fairy tales and how they work. She was a self-proclaimed atheist, but she definitely, I think in a way that I love deeply, is she just really gets fairy tales. And when, as we're going to kind of explore, I think when you really get fairy tales, you have an essential truth about the universe. And so I think as Christians and as Catholics, there's a lot of richness that we can take from these books. They're definitely, the feeling that I kind of came away from reading Hell's Moving Castle was a sense of real goodness and real goodness in the world that she created, that there's a bit like Lewis, uh, our friend Ben always says that like the thing that Lewis does really well, particularly in the Narnia books, is that he makes being good very attractive. And I kind of feel that way about Howl's Moving Castle as well. Absolutely. Just one thing on her learning from Lewis and Tolkien. She mentions that they taught us to believe in dragons, which I think is just such a great tribute to both of those writers. Yeah, absolutely. Later in the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what great writers like Tolkien and Lewis have said about fairy tales and why they're important. I'm a little bit conscious that I don't have a great many quotes from Diana Wynne-Jones herself, but what I will preface this by saying is that she has a book called Reflections on Writing and the Magic of Writing. And I wasn't able to really access it. There was a couple of samples online, but with lockdown, I'm not able to walk into libraries like I used to be able to. So sadly, I wasn't actually able to get my hands on it. But just to flag that, it wasn't a a deliberate choice not to quote her quite as much in that kind of aspect of analysing it. But I know there's chapters in that book on reflections where she talks about narrative in The Lord of the Rings and the fantastical work of C.S. Lewis. So she definitely has her own writings on this. Just... One quote from Diana Wynne-Jones, which is in the introduction to the beautiful book of Howl's Moving Castle that we were talking about earlier, is that she says, I think I write the kind of books I do because the world suddenly went mad when I was five years old, which is when the Second World War started and they got sent to live in Wales with their grandparents. That's really beautiful. There's that kind of combination of both how the world went into chaos, but also that she was moved to this beautiful landscape that clearly really inspired her as well that's so cool yeah and I think also the idea of helping all of us to understand the world around us that that's what stories do absolutely yeah that's so true and I think the thing that I was going to go on to say is that as Diana Wynne-Jones is someone who really understands fairy tales she can also twist them and slightly challenge them in a really fun and genuine way like if you're thinking of protagonists of fairy tales Sophie as the cantankerous old lady is definitely not what comes to mind but she is so much fun and and there is an element where Sophie needs to be saved as the damsel in distress but so is Howl and the difference is is that they both have flaws which they have to overcome and help each other to overcome that it's this kind of mutual thing rather than being very one-sided and they're both as impossible as each other in some ways and that as with all fairy tales that they should do but take something that might have become a bit familiar and stable and uh, fall into an expected trope and she just changes it up a little bit but with that good real heart to the fairy tale it's not just about making it dark or upsetting for the sake of challenging your expectations it's about saying that these things can look slightly different in a different context yeah and I think we're going to talk later about how fairy tales themselves give a new eye to this world and I think 
what Diana Wynne Jones does in House Women Castle is to give a new eye to fairy tales. Yeah, that's the, a great way of putting stories, it. The stories that we've almost become tired of, partly because we're told to become tired of them, I think, suddenly become refreshed when they're brought into her world and added colour to. Yeah, because this was written in 1986, which I think is still considered fairly modern. <laughs> Uh, I know people will be horrified to hear that we're coming up on 40 years of that. But I mean, for us who read a lot of like Victorian era literature, it's pretty modern. <laughs> pretty modern. I consider it pretty modern. But yeah, I think we were just going to talk about some of the things that we liked best about the book to start off with. And I think you can't say that there's anything that you could possibly like more about the book than the characters of Sophie and Howell. Absolutely. They're very true to life and they're very just familiar and funny. And yeah, it's great. So Sophie, you get her running monologue of things. So you see the way that she thinks. And it's so funny to watch how she misunderstands things and misunderstands herself, I think, the most. That she doesn't see how the world sees her. And so she ends up backing herself into a corner and getting flustered about things or like getting obsessed about things, like you were saying with the cleaning, where she just becomes, well, like, this is my modus operandi. And like, I think at one point Hal says, you must find a new meaning to your life. (laughs) Yeah. And also just that trap she lays for herself of being the eldest. Mm -hmm. Like we introduced the book with that idea of being the eldest means that she'll fail first and worst. But she also tries to make that true for herself until at one point Hal goes like, it's not the fact that you're the eldest. It's the fact that you're not thinking about something. (laughs) Yeah, And I think we see it with the curse as well, that she's kind of trapped herself into it. As much as you also have external factors, you also have the like her lying to herself. One of the things I, I love is like with her cleaning, she realizes much later that that was really her expression of her anger at being laid under that curse. Mm-hmm. Was to then go and like clean everything with an excuse if it needed to be clean, but really to just vent. <laughs> Absolutely. But she's very practical and self-effacing. But you're right. And as the story goes on, it becomes clear that she has a magic of her own, which allows her to to speak life into things. But it's almost because she has this sort of really constant monologue where she's just talking to everything. Like at the start, she starts talking to her hats or she's, she's mending some clothes and she starts talking to the clothes. But the things that she's saying over these clothes have a magical effect on them and she doesn't even realize it. And so I think it, it's such a a fun way of looking at like the power of words and what magic can mean within a fairy tale and that how in some ways it can be much closer to real life in the sense that I think we can all dig ourselves into holes and make things a reality because we keep saying them and that also that that like in some ways it's such a shame that she only finds her freedom once she's like well I don't I don't have to try to be pretty and young and proper anymore now I'm old I can just do what I want and say what I want there's that sense of becoming your true self under a disguise and there's so many fun disguises there's like there's an endless amount of of people turning from one thing into another and one thing turning out to be another thing and two people can even be combined in some ways at the heart there's a sense of like what does it mean to discover your real self and Howell goes through the same thing because he is just flamboyant and temperamental but also incredibly patient like his virtues are so appealing in this story he he has genuine tantrums where it's like a four-year-old throwing an absolute tantrum yeah if any of you've seen the movie there's a scene where he just covers himself in green slime and mm-hmm. like puddles green slime all over the room <laughs> and Sophie's reaction is very typical of that to just like give him an utter scolding in return 
<laughs> this temper tantrum is not because of anything very serious. It's because the color of his hair has been dyed slightly the wrong color. So, you know, he's so like vain and he's so interested in, in getting women to fall in love with him. He prides himself in his insincerity and his caddishness, but he's never, it's never in a very malicious way. There's definitely still a very gentlemanly sense under him. And he's, he's very kind and especially patient with Sophie. When you're reading it, she just shows up at his house and starts wrecking his life and he just kind of says okay <laughs> and then you have his apprentice Michael who's a, I think he's a teenager in it and he's sort of running around getting in a flap about things and Calcifer is very the fire demon is very sassy and always commenting and having like his own little little jibe it's just it, it's definitely a family that you want to be in and the castle itself is such a fun and exciting idea I was saying to Phoebe that I feel like there's so many stories for kids about closing a door and, and opening it and it being a different world. I mean, like the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe is the ultimate example of that. But I was also thinking of there's an Enid Blyton story called the, the enchanted wood, where when you climb to the top of the tree, you can find not only a different land, but a rota of different lands that sort of go around on a disc. And depending on what time you go up, you can be in a different world. And there's that real sense of excitement that you could close the door and open it and a whole new world is there. But the moving castle in House Moving Castle still feels like a really fresh version of that that I haven't really seen before. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also really cool that in the book, this might be a slight spoiler for the book, but vaguely, that the one of the dials on the castle leads back to our world, mm-hmm. to our hometown in Wales, which is very, yeah, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe-esque of yeah. being able to step from one world to the other. I know. And we're going to be talking about how fairy tales re-enchant our own world. And if you ever want a great example of that, it's the perspective of somebody who's from a fairy tale who finds themselves opening a door and entering our world with video games and cars and they're they're just complete bafflement about it like even the fact that he has some clothes on that are are more typical of our world so she's like reading the back of it being like welsh rugby what is that <laughs> um, yeah or they go into house sister's family's house and mm-hmm. the son is playing a video game and they're like don't disrupt we're gonna lose a life and like Sophie and Michael both freeze in the corner like oh, life is at stake <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's great so all of these like fun adventure parts of it are just great and the the dialogue is so much fun and the characters are really compelling and then at, at the core of it there's some really beautiful messages about there's a phrase in the story where a heart is a heavy burden and how people try to either close off their hearts or give their hearts away and that that what falling in love and and real love really means and and how it is very different to trying to make people fall in love with you or pretend that it doesn't apply to you because you're maybe you're too old or something like that yeah there's a real beautiful message at at the core of the story that is is about love and, and and about bringing out virtue in people. And worthiness to be loved as well. Yeah. But yeah, one of the key parts is because Sophie's old, she thinks herself immune to the charm of Hal. And then when she's realising that she's in love with him, still doesn't think that he would ever love her. So I think that's just a really interesting part of like, yeah, worthiness. In some ways, it's, again, like we were saying, a twist on the Beauty and the Beast story that's kind of going in both ways at the same time, because... Howl is definitely the, the cad who needs to 
come to terms with what it really means to self-sacrifice and love. But uh, Sophie is is the beast in the sense that she's the one that nobody would think of looking at her and, and saying, I would, I would fall in love with. It's that elements of both being in both characters. And so this mutual journey that they're going on, which is just such a, a fun and uplifting story. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it'll kind of... A little bit at the start that I wanted to talk about was so Sophie at the start is working at her family's hat shop and really on her own, scared to go outside. And I think there's a kind of turned in on herself there that really reminded me of um, the part from the screw tape letters of doing neither what I like nor what I ought. Mm. Because she doesn't, at that point, her sisters have gone off to other things and she doesn't have anyone to love there or anyone to serve really and like it's not that she has a duty to remain at the hat shop but when when she does go out she's like she's really excited to go out and then when she goes out she's scared of the happy people basically yeah there's a sense that she's sort of unreasonably afraid of the world and that she's kind of paralyzed herself and uh, we're not making any kind of <laughs> direct parallel with our current situation but I, I certainly don't have any advice for anyone on, on what to be doing during lockdown but that to recall and remember and cherish that the world is good and that it's not just a case of succumbing to an unending fear we have to expect that god's love is still in the world and also i think expect well of other people which is another thing we really see in the books of the damage which comes from almost deliberately misunderstanding or expecting the worst of someone else. And having bad expectations of people. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, there's a real sense of even the book kind of opens with people gossiping. And I think that sort of idle talk and idly frittering away your character as well, like Howell keeps trying to get his name blackened so that he won't be asked to do things. So he keeps spreading rumours about himself to make himself out to be worse than he is. And I think there's a real lesson in it which says that we in some ways can't be too careful with our own characters, but that we should also be generous with other people's characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see Sophie's stepmother gets quite a hard deal at the beginning. And then Sophie, looking back on it when she's old realizes how unkind she's been in that deal. It's like realizing how young her stepmother was mm -hmm. and that she was just as bored of the hat shop as Sophie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally correct. That the failure to see other people's perspective and the failure to, to grant potentially good motives to people. How easily, because I think Sophie starts off with being maybe a little too naive and that she, it just doesn't cross her mind that someone could have another motive. But as soon as somebody suggests that, oh, maybe there is a negative motive behind it, she immediately goes for that full pelt and then doubts everything and says that like nobody could possibly have good motives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that almost then turns into like why she leaves as an old woman, that mm -hmm. she doesn't feel like anyone could tolerate her staying yeah even yeah. that she like she avoids her sisters she because she doesn't want them to see that she's old so there's that kind of shame of herself and lack of trust of others as well I think that's that's really true and I think it gets to a really important theme of the story which is the power of words and I think that kind of leads us quite nicely into talking about fairy tales more generally and why they're important and the place that they have in our imagination Phoebe's doing a little dance because she's very excited to get onto this bit <laughs> I mean, I was excited to talk about Half Women Castle generally, but it 
we're going to talk about a couple of essays by Chesterton and Tolkien looking at Elfland and the world of the imagination and what we learn from them. Yeah, and why fairy tales are important. Like, in some ways, the question, why was it important for Diana Wynne-Jones to tell a new fairy story in 1986? That, like, and she wrote many other things as well, by the way, and I'm looking forward to getting to those eventually as well. Almost everything she wrote has the essence of a fairy story in some form or other. Yeah, and so fairy tales were something that clearly preoccupied her, and I think fairy tales preoccupy a lot of people and moving. We now have like the kind of fantasy genre. But if we're talking about fairy tales, it's like Phoebe said, we're going to be talking about Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, where he does a long explanation at the start about how it's very difficult to get a definition of fairy stories kind of nailed down. But they're all those stories that hearken to a more enchanted version of the world that we live in. And that while they can contain fairies, he goes on to say, they also contain dragons and trolls and goblins and have an element of magical enchantment to them. And I think a really important point that he makes there is that even though the story contains these elements, the story itself is not about fairies, but about people. Mm -hmm. And that we tell these stories to tell stories about people in a different way. Definitely. Yeah, I found quotes of stories that are actually concerned primarily with fairies, that is, with creatures that might also in modern English be called elves, are relatively rare and as a rule not very interesting. Most good fairy stories are about the adventures of men in the perilous realm or upon its shadowy marches. Naturally so, for if elves are true and really exist independently of our tales about them, then this is also certainly true. Elves are not primarily concerned with us, nor we with them. Our fates are sundered and our paths seldom meet. Even upon the borders of fairy, we encounter them only at some chance crossing of the ways. Beautiful. Yeah, and I think that kind of what we would say a liminal space, that crossing of the ways, that intersection of of the real world and the the imagined fairy world is where the magic happens. And just a quick note, which is that we discussed this topic kind of slightly in the episode I did with Robin on Cartoon Saloon and kind of Celtic storytelling, where we talked about the place that fairy tales have within a Christian context. So if you want to get like a bit more detail, you can go to that episode if you're looking to understand why Christians stand behind fairy tales and why they can very much be a part of the Christian and Catholic way of looking at the world. But I suppose we're going to be talking about them a little bit more generally, which is just that why the human instinct for fairy tales is a good one and and what they teach us about our own humanity. I've been thinking a lot about fairy tales in in the run-up to this podcast and, and what is so appealing about them. And I think there's something about them, which is it holds the the essential truths of the things that it talks about. Like that Chesterton talks about them being more real. And I think Lewis would, would back that up, that he uses the analogy of like a plant is more real than a seed because the seed just has the potential and the, and the plant has the reality. And so fairy tales help us to see the reality in some ways or the, the essentialness. And Tolkien gets at this where he talks about that in the fall of humanity from Eden, we lost some of the truth of the world that God created for us, that we are at odds with nature in a way that we shouldn't be. And so he says, but there are also other and more profound escapisms that have always appeared in fairy tale and legend. There are profounder wishes, such as the desire to converse with other living things, 
on this desire, as ancient as the fall, is largely founded the talking beasts and creatures in fairy tales, and especially the magical understanding of their proper speech. This is the root and not the confusion attributed to the minds of men of the unrecorded past, an alleged absence of the sense of separation of ourselves from beasts. A vivid sense of that separation is very ancient, but also a sense that it was a severance, a strange fate and a guilt lies on us. And so I think that's just a beautiful way of saying how while fairy tales are imaginative and a suspension of disbelief, that the reason that they're hearkening to us is that they are seeking to teach us something more true than the world around us. And I think that really comes across in language, like I said, the power of words. And Tolkien always obviously had a profound understanding of Christ as the Logos and that those first words in Genesis were, and God said, you know, that all of creation is being spoken into existence in this great story. The Logos means word, but it also has that sense of being a word that conveys meaning. And so within that is kind of a story. Peter Kreeft has a talk about this where he talks about how that's why Tolkien loved proper names so much. And that's why people in ancient stories, like you get in the Bible or in the Iliad, you have those big long lists of people's names and their heritage and their lineage going all the way back. And that's because people's names are words attributed to humans that are made in the image and likeness of God. And so there's a truth to them that is essential in and of itself. He has a quote here and he's referencing the philosopher Heidegger. And he says, Heidegger defines language as the house of being. Words and language are not wrappings in which things are packed for the commerce of those who write and speak. It is in words and language that things first come into being and are. For this reason, the misuse of language in idle talk, in slogans and phrases, destroys our authentic relation to things. God speaks and only then does the world come into being. Tolkien speaks and only then does Middle Earth come into being. Corollary, since the things that are encompassed by words, our wonder at the things is encompassed by our wonder at the words. And if we have no linguistic wonder, we have no ontological wonder. And he goes on to make the point that like when Tolkien was writing, he started with the language, that he created the language of elves and then had to create the elves to have the language and then had to create the stories of the elves for them to have developed the language. So that idea that like language comes first and that the idea of speaking life into things is such a deeply Christian, like we said, it's in the first words of the Bible that God speaks life into things. And so when you read a story of like Sophie finding that she has the power that when she speaks over things, she speaks life into them. There's a truth to that that's more true than the fact that when we speak, it can just be words that sort of evaporate into the air. Yeah, and I think also the fact that it's a gift that can go wrong, Mm -hmm. that she also accidentally speaks a spell into something to do something that she doesn't want it to do. Yeah. And then desperately has to try and undo that again. Yeah. And that way she's not God because she doesn't have full control and she doesn't understand what she's doing. That like she's still a lesser version of it. But that like you said, that it can go wrong. Or as we saw with the contracts and things like that, that you can 
make a bargain and it not necessarily be the right thing to do. But I've always, I, I've said that for a long time, which is that I, in some ways it's incredible to me that we've really lost our sense of giving your word on something that like nobody seems mm-hmm. to mind anymore when you say something and you don't follow through or you say something and it's a blatant lie or you say something and you change your mind when it's more convenient to you. On that point, Chesterton has a great quote from his essay in Elfland where he talks about the story of the princess and the frog and says that that story is in any ways talk about princesses marrying frogs but the importance of keeping your word yeah. I think this is back to why we need these fairy stories to remind us of things like that definitely and I think Chesterton in that chapter it's in orthodoxy and it, it's called the ethics of Elfland like Phoebe said and it, it's such a good chapter <laughs> and he also has an essay called on fairy stories which also goes into this he talks about how that the crazy rules, a bit like that, like saying that you'll marry a frog or having these kind of conditions put on things is so essential to fairy stories because it's in some ways because we've forgotten what the gift of life is that we object to the the rules that are put on it. And so he makes the comparison between wanting to have many wives. I think he talks about being a bigamist and saying that like, why are we not rejoicing at the fact that it is possible in this world to have one wife? On the one on fairy tales, he said, if you really read the fairy tales, you will observe that one idea runs from one end of them to the other. The idea that peace and happiness can only exist on some condition. This idea, which is the core of ethics, is the core of the nursery tales. The whole happiness of fairy tale hangs upon a thread, upon one thread. Cinderella may have a dress woven on supernatural looms and blazing with unearthly brilliance, but she must be back when the clock strikes twelve. The king may invite fairies to the christening, but he must invite all the fairies or frightful results will follow. Bluebeard's wife may open all doors but one. A promise is broken to a cat and the whole world goes wrong. A promise is broken to a yellow dwarf and the whole world goes wrong. A girl may be the bride of the god of love himself if she never tries to see him. She sees him and he vanishes away. A girl is given a box on condition that she does not open it. She opens it and all the evils of this world rush out at her. A man and a woman are put in a garden on condition that they do not eat one fruit. They eat it and lose their joy in all the fruits of all the earth. This great idea then is the backbone of folklore, the idea that all happiness hangs on one thin veto, all positive joy depends on one negative. Not only can these fairy tales be enjoyed because they are moral, but morality can be enjoyed because it puts us in fairyland, in a world at once of wonder and of war. Such a good quote. Yeah, and we see that so much in in Howl's Moving Castle, that like the the essence of how words are binding and how words are damaging, and and it has these very obvious reactions which we don't necessarily see in our world, and because we we've become kind of too blasé about them. Yeah, and kind of on that point, but also looking back to the part about on Tolkien's essay of desire, I think we really see in the contract between Howl and Kelsifer. And then also the end of that contract, which is in the evil witch of the story, mm-hmm. who in kind of classic fairy tale style is living much longer than she would have. Uh, Tolkien talks about there is the oldest and deepest desire, the great escape, the escape from death. Fairy stories provide many examples and modes of this, which might be called the genuine escapist, or I would say fugitive spirit. But so do other stories, notably those of scientific inspiration, and so do other studies. Fairy stories are made by men, not fairies. 
Human stories of the elves are doubtless full of the escape from deathlessness, but our stories cannot be expected always to rise above our common level. They often do. Few lessons are taught more clearly in them than the burden of that kind of immortality, or rather endless serial living, to which the fugitive would fly. For this fairy story is especially apt to teach such things of old and still today. I think that's kind of really important mm-hmm. point of the story that Howl and Calcifer have got themselves into this mess, but they're desperately trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. That they've seen how that escapism will go and they want to avoid it. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's so interesting to add that level of understanding to it. If I can make one last language point before we move on to our next bit, because, you know, I do love language (laughs) and I love Tolkien. So I have to point out that the very start of that essay that he has on fairy stories has this incredible exposition on how words and magic are linked and how the two are so essential to how we view the world. So he talks about philology as in the love of language. So he says, philology has been dethroned from the high place it once had in this court of inquiry. Max Muller's view of mythology as a disease of language can be abandoned without regret. It would be nearer the truth to say that languages, especially modern European languages, are a disease of mythology. (laughs) But language cannot all the same be dismissed. The incarnate mind, the tongue, and the tail are in our world coeval. The human mind, endowed with the powers of generalization and abstraction, sees not only green grass, discriminating it from other things and finding it fair to look upon, but sees that it is green as well as being grass. But how powerful, how stimulating to the very faculty that produced it was the invention of the adjective. No spell or incantation in fairy is more potent and that is not surprising. Such incantations might indeed be said to be only another view of adjectives, a part of speech in a mythical grammar. The mind that thought of light, heavy, grey, yellow, still, swift, also conceived a magic that would make heavy things light and able to fly, turn grey lead into yellow gold, and the still rock into a swift water. If it could do the one, it could do the other. It inevitably did both. When we take green from grass, blue from heaven, and red from blood, we have already an enchanter's power upon one plane, and the desire to wield that power in the world external to our mind awakes. It does not follow that we shall use the power well upon any plane. We may put a deadly green upon a man's face and produce a horror. We may make the rare and terrible blue moon to shine, or we may cause woods to spring with silver leaves and rams to wear fleeces of gold and to put hot fire into the belly of the cold worm. But in such fantasy, as it is called, new form is made, fairy begins, man becomes a sub-creator. I love that part of Tolkien and sub-creation. Yeah, he has that line that fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. Absolutely beautiful. And there's that sense when you do that of the real joy and wonder of the world. And that's kind of what we were touching on earlier, that there's a sense of seeing the world almost as it really is by enchanting it and by delving into these worlds in which magic happens and coming away refreshed and seeing the world around us with new eyes. Yeah, a Chesterton quote to go with that, where he's talking about this idea of refreshing the real world. First, I found the whole modern world 
talking scientific fatalism, saying that everything is as it must always have been, being unfolded without fault from the beginning. The leaf on the tree is green because it could never have been anything else. Now, the fairy tale philosopher is glad that the leaf is green precisely because it might have been scarlet. He feels as if it turned green an instant before he looked at it. He is pleased that snow is white, on the strictly reasonable ground that it might have been black. Every colour has in it a bold quality of choice. The red of garden roses is not only decisive but dramatic, like suddenly spilt blood. He feels that something has been done. But the great determinants of the 19th century were strongly against this native feeling that something had happened an instant before. In fact, according to them, nothing ever really had happened since the beginning of the world. And even about that date, they were not very sure. Yeah, so I think that's just a really interesting look at yeah how that power of naming things can carry over to either like a mundanity of, well, the world has always been like this, or the joy that fairy tales give us of it didn't have to be like this, but it has been made like this. And isn't that wonderful? Yeah, he has a quote where he sums that up again, where he says, these tales that apples were golden only refresh the forgotten moment when we found out that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. I love that of like, oh, wait, they didn't have to run with water. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to have rivers at all. Exactly. And that real sense of like it being such a gift. He has a, a really fascinating section where he talks about how we've all forgotten our true nature and that when we look at the world and don't see the shocking awe of it that we have really lost sight of first of all that there is anything rather than nothing and that everything within that anything is such an incredible gift but he says we have all read in scientific books and indeed in all romances the story of the man who has forgotten his name this man walks about the streets and can name and see and appreciate everything only he cannot remember who he is. Well, every man is that man in the story. Every man has forgotten who he is. One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, but thou shalt not know thyself. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. All that we call common sense and rationality and practicality and positivism only means that for certain dead levels of our lives, we forget that we have forgotten. All that we call spirit and art and ecstasy only means that for one awful instant, we remember that we forget. That's such a Chestertonian twist. And it's so good. And it's so, I, I don't know whether Diana Wynne Jones read Cheston, but I feel like there's so much in that quote that's in Howl's Moving Castle. People forgetting their names, knowing stars, but not knowing themselves, forgetting your own nature. There's almost like a character for every line of that Chesterton quote. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis make a similar point, which is that the things that they tend to love most in fairy stories are not actually the fairy stories, but the things that are actually in our world. Tolkien says, actually, fairy stories deal largely, or the better ones, mainly with simple or fundamental things untouched by fantasy. But these simplicities are made all the more luminous by their setting. For the story maker who allows himself to be free with nature can be her lover and not her slave. It was in fairy stories that I first divined the potency of the words and the wonder of things such as stone and wood and iron 
tree and grass, house and fire, bread and wine. Oh, incredible. And C.S. Lewis, he has a he has an essay called On Stories, which is also very excellent. Uh, he's talking about The Wind in the Willows, which I think is really fun because I've just been referencing The Wind in the Willows, I think, for about three podcasts straight. But he's talking about how when you read The Wind in the Willows, and even I find myself wondering it, that the animals seem to live in this paradox where they are both adults in that they have their own lives, they're masters of their own destiny, and they can do the things that they want to do and have the means to do them with. They're also children in the sense that they have no responsibilities. They don't seem to need to work. They just appear with all of their food and their goods and their, their comfortable houses and their furniture. And he he talks about how that's a, a almost unbearably tantalising idea of how life could be lived. But he says, to that extent, the book is a specimen of the most scandalous escapism. It paints a happiness under incompatible conditions, the sort of freedom that we can have only in childhood and the sort that we can only have in maturity and conceals the contradiction by the further pretense that the characters are not human beings at all. The one absurdity helps to hide the other. It might be expected that such a book would unfit us for the harshness of reality and send us back to our daily lives unsettled and discontented. I do not find that it does so. The happiness which it presents to us is in fact full of the simplest and most attainable things. Food, sleep, exercise, friendship, the face of nature, even in a sense religion. That simple but sustaining meal of bacon and broad beans and macaroni pudding which Rat gives to his friends has, I doubt not, helped down many a real nursery dinner. And in the same way, the whole story, paradoxically enough, strengthens our relish for real life. This excursion into the preposterous sends us back with renewed pleasure to the actual. Like we said, that that's so well done in Howl's Moving Castle when you find yourself back in regular life in the real world and it's just as bewildering and baffling to the characters of this fairy story as their world would be to ours. Yeah, you don't step into a world where everything is flat. Mm-hmm. Um, like you kind of do, but you kind of don't as well. Yeah, and you definitely have the sense that the characters who have never been here before are, are just sort of completely bewildered by it. Yeah, like Sophie is terrified of the motor car. It's great. <laughs> Shaking and noisy, it's like a giant beast. What is this thing? <laughs> and she lives in a moving castle. <laughs> yeah, I think it really highlights how immune we can become to the extraordinary things around us Mm -hmm. and how much joy there is to be found in our own simple lives. Yeah. And in in some ways, in a a kind of metatextual way, the joys that we have of having a simple book and reading it and exploring a new world and that kind of enchantment is available to us in this world and we may not have moving castles and we may not have witches who put curses on us, but we have books where those things happen and it's a much better world that we have that world than as Chester might point out, a world in which we don't have stories. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine? <laughs> and I think that's what Chesterton is so good at. I, I was saying to Phoebe before this started, it's almost like I get like angry when I'm reading it because he so turns your world the opposite way to the, the way that you're used to thinking of it. Yeah, I think Ethics of Elfland is particularly one of those that really flips it because like you were saying of um he asks why apple blossoms should be related to apples and on an ordinary sense you go what are you on about yeah. but and or like why the moon and the tide would be related mm-hmm. but it just highlights the deeper question of 
that all of our science only tells us how they're related. Yeah. Like we know from experience that apple blossoms lead to apples, but from a philosophical point of view, there is no reason that a flower would become an apple only because God has ordained it. Yeah. And I think we can, we can sum it up with one final Chesterton quote, which is just at the end of that chapter where he says, thus I have said that stories of magic alone can express my sense that life is not only a pleasure, but a kind of eccentric privilege. So I guess that's, that's it. There's only one thing I have left to do, which is to ask you, Phoebe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Well, I was reading a book earlier in the week called Adlimina. Um, and it's a short novel by Cyril Jones Kellett. And it's, a pr- it's on the premise of the first natural-born bishop of Mars. So he grew up on Mars in a colony there. This is sci-fi, obviously. Having to make his first ad limina visit back to Rome to see the Pope, hmm. and to pray at the tomb of St. Peter. And it's great. It's like, he has like a lot of like different adventures along the way and it's kind of it's a really interesting look at the ethics of our modern world you because you've got like there's two main movements of the new progressive movement and the new fascist movement and the fascist movement are kind of like the strong traditionalists Mm -hmm. that want to make everything back to like earth in their wanting to make everything back to earth they're willing to use violence to do that mm-hmm. and the new progressive movement which are kind of the more dominant one is the like the society of tolerance but that tolerance takes the expression of when at the beginning of the book the bishop tries to book like his official transport back to earth gets like an absolute slating for it in the media because he's a catholic and therefore on the official no-fly zone and how dare this bishop who is catholic that we just that we tolerate out of our goodness how dare he try and book transport officially Mm -hmm. so you kind of got those conflicting ideas and they work them their way out in different ways and it looks like some like interesting applications of theology to that world Mm -hmm. and to space travel but it's also and it's also a really nice human reminder of bishops being human and our church leaders being human. He has in his head that the religious leaders on earth must have like this great plan and almost be way above him. And then gets a shock when he realizes that actually they're only doing the best they can just like him. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, it's a really good book. It's really short. I really enjoyed it. For what I've been enjoying, like, honestly, the thing I was enjoying most for the past week was Howl's Moving Castle. So, (laughs) but I I will say something different, which is, I guess it's kind of funny, hilariously, now that I'm home with my dad and you, you would think with the surname Sherlock, you would get tired of all of the Sherlock references, but we seem to be working our way through every iteration of Sherlock Holmes that we own. So we've watched some of the Jeremy Brett series from ITV from, I think it's the 80s. And then we watched the two Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. And also it seems to be on the television all the time. So we've seen them both and then chunks of them again since. And now we've started rewatching the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock <laughs> series. So um, I know he has some Basil Rathbone DVDs, so we'll probably have to get to those as well. But I, I don't know what it is. I think it's just like a nice homely thing where whenever we get together, we seem to kind of go back to those great classic stories. And we love Sherlock Holmes in this house. So I'm very proud. What it means, Rachel, is that you're missing your Watson. I'm missing my Watson. I miss you, Watson. <laughs> 
<laughs> Miss you too, Sherlock. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I've been enjoying. And I guess that's it. Like I said, I will not be releasing any new podcasts until September. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you all again then. I will be missing you greatly. And hopefully, like I said, we'll be able to keep up a little bit over the summer. And I will also, I'm looking forward to um, getting some new great topics lined up and hopefully some new guests and looking forward to coming back strong and and, and uh, speaking to you all again. I'm sure it'll fly. I can't believe I've been, I've been away from our flat, Phoebe, for three months. Can you believe I've been gone for three months? Wow, that's incredible. You see, it doesn't even feel that long for you when you're in the flat on your own. <laughs> well, it's both. It feels like both endless and not that long. Yeah, it seems to just go by in a flash. For me. Um, so I'm sure the summer will also yeah. go by in a flash, unfortunately. But in the meantime, like I said, follow me on all of the social medias, uh, reach out. It's been lovely hearing from people. It's been really lovely getting to know some of the listeners. and. And God bless, and we will be praying for you all. And have a lovely summer. Have a great summer. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.